our God as we consider the rain and we trust the snow which is falling, we have to give you praise even though it inconveniences us sometimes. We recognize our great dependence upon your supply and we're thankful, Lord, as we have read this past week, the snowpack being much below normal, we just are grateful for whatever you send our way and we trust, Lord, that you will continue. <clears throat> to supply and meet the need, not only for our sakes, but for millions of people who live here in California. And Father, I pray that through it all, somehow there will be thousands who will be bought, brought to a recognition of the sovereignty of God and that uh, you control even the climate and the weather that uh, impacts us each day. Father, I pray now that you will bless us in the moments that we spend in your word guide our thinking, help us to see truth here, and, and to move away from those things which are extraneous, and pray that each of us will be drawn into a greater understanding of who you are and what you're doing in and through our lives. We just thank you for this time together, for your hand upon us. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 35, reading at uh, verse 23. Genesis 35, reading at verse 23. Last phrase of verse 22. Now there were twelve sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paden Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Well, we've been focusing on a lot of uh, topics that are somewhat less than delightful uh, to, to consider as we went through the uh, uh, situation with Jacob's daughter and then the reaction of his sons and then uh, the death of his wife and now we're moving towards Hebron finally. These verses, this, this particular passage simply summarizes the coming of Jacob's sons and to what mothers they belonged. And I think one of the reasons that they're summarized here, and it, it's, you'll find several times in Scripture these kinds of summaries occur, I think it's done here because partly, at least, in the next chapter, we're going to be focusing entirely on the um, lineage of, of Esau and looking at, at his five sons and his 11 grandsons, which are mentioned in that particular a passage of scripture. So it could be that we have this, this little summary here in contrast or in comparison to what the next chapter will be focusing, focusing on. In this passage we find that he finally moved to Hebron. It's been a long time. <laughs> From the day he finally crossed the Euphrates River, heading on down to Canaan and, and finally moving his entire family to, uh, to Hebron, it's been a long row to hoe. 
and uh, many, many events have occurred. And what's interesting is that just the last year or two before he made the final move, he was, he was inundated. Uh, I mean, it seemed like blow after blow fell upon him. He was kind of a, uh, of a job in, in some ways in, in what impacted his life. I mean, we have the rape of his oldest daughter, Dinah, by Shechem the Hivite. We have the response of, of two his, of his sons, Simeon and Levi, who then wiped out the males of the city. And, and Jacob, of course, was constantly reminded of what had happened every time he walked around his camp and he saw these women and these children who used to live in Shechem and were now part of his camp because his sons had captured them and brought them home. And then, of course, we had that one little verse that told about the death of his beloved nanny, Deborah. And, and you know, that, that was sort of a, a person that he had known from the time he was an infant to the present. Now it was gone from his life, a kind of a stabilizing influence there. And then, of course, nothing can compare to the tragic loss of his beloved Rachel. That was his, the greatest blow that he suffered in this, this brief time period. And then just kind of to add to the whole thing at the end, you have the incest committed by Reuben that we looked at at the very uh, end of class last time. Now, what is he going home for? Well, partly because he should have gone home long before, but because he's anticipating the death of his father. I mean, you, you kind of compact that, and you've got another Job, it would seem like here. I mean, he hasn't lost everything. He still has all these flocks running around. He still has all of his sons and daughters and, and three of his wives, so it's, it's certainly not as tragic as, as the situation we see in Job's instance, but nevertheless, these were serious blows that impacted this man. I mean, here was a man with a relatively peaceful family and, and a lifestyle, sort of that pastoral image, you know, that we all have, how nice it would be to live out in the country with the rolling hills and the green and, and just you and the sheep, you know. But this lifestyle exploded on him, and so much of what he had held near and dear was, was gone so suddenly. Why? You know, the question has often been asked, and, and various individuals have attempted to answer the question. They've written articles, they've written books. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I think the story of Job explains that primarily for us, but not always exclusively. And why have all these hard things happened to, to Jacob? Is it because Jacob was a bad man? Well, in the course of the study of Scripture, Jacob was not a bad man. I think it happened because, well, you could say in part those things just happen in life. Well. Uh, to say that and press that too hard, we begin to, to push God out of the picture. And I don't think we need or should do that. But what we have here is God forging Jacob into Israel. This is his, his effort, is to, to take this man Jacob and make him an Israel. Not just in name, but in reality. And as I thought about this, particularly this morning, a couple of passages came to mind that I didn't put on the outline uh, and I'd like to just turn to them quickly. One is uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we have, we have 
read through this passage many times, and, and if we read it with the wrong uh, attitude, we get the feeling that, that Paul is bellyaching, which of course he is not. Uh, he is simply protesting his, his claim to apostleship here. But as you read through Paul's statement here of the things which occurred in his life, look at verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on sea, dangers among false brethren. <laughs> Almost sounds like you took a trip to L.A. <laughs> I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of, of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, so escaped his hands. So, so, you know, here Paul recounts sort of a summary of what he had been through. Now, it didn't happen in, in one day or one week or one year, but nevertheless, it's a long list of trials and tribulations that Paul went through. Now, why did he do that? I mean, why did all this happen to him? Was it because he was a bad man? Well, certainly it was not. I mean, God was forming, shaping this apostle. And it seems to be through the hard times that our character in terms of our relationship to God is forged. If, if it's all, you know, sunny seas with just kind of the lapping of the waves, you know, and the sun is shining and the birds are chirping, you know, what's to make us grow? But when the storm is raging, it's when, that's when we say to the Lord, why are you sleeping? We're going to sink. Help us, Lord. And, of course, we know God isn't sleeping. But uh, this is, I think, what's happening to, to Jacob. Sure, we could say it's just part of living. People are going to die. Tragedies are going to happen. But not without God's knowledge and without God's superintendency. And that's why, of course, the book of Job was given to us, so that we would know that even when these great calamities come, God knows it's happening, and God has allowed it to happen for a purpose. We may not know that purpose ever in this life, but we need to rest in the fact that he knows what he's doing. Now, another, uh, in, in conjunction with that, the passage in 1 Peter, uh, which I think is very applicable to us, 1 Peter verse chapter 1, kind of summarizes all of this in terms of how we should relate to it ourselves. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, 
that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you, re you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. It's all the outworking of what Christ is doing in us. Salvation is an ongoing process. It's what God is working in us and through us in the world. And uh, these trials and tribulations are, are there that we might, for one thing, be more appreciative of what it will be like when we stand face to face with Jesus Christ in eternity. At the same time, I think he gives us the strength to bear up under these pressures and these trials. Jacob lives through it. Jacob mourns for a long time over his beloved Rachel, and that is not said to be wrong. It does lead at least to a little bit of exasperation on the part of his sons, but, but that's because of other factors, really. It's because they felt that they themselves and, and their mothers were in a, in a second-class position in the eyes of their father, which was wrong to start with. And that certainly exacerbated the whole situation. But, uh, but Jacob is being prepared for what God yet has him to do. Even though the man's 100 years old or so now, he's not finished. God is still working with him. God was still working with Isaac, and Isaac was 160, going on 180. And I don't think we should view Isaac as just a person sitting on the couch over there, unable to do anything for 20 years. You know, he had a role to play. The scripture does not describe it. It's silent pretty much about his last 20 years. But certainly God was still working through Isaac and even ministering through him to his son Jacob as Jacob was with his father for those last years uh, of his life. And what was the influence of the grandfather on his grandsons? We don't know, but we have to assume that God was working good in their lives. Verse 27 of Genesis 35, oh, we, we read those verses, 27 through 29, so I won't read them again at, at this point. But simply to remind us that uh, Jacob had dallied at Ephrath after burying Rachel. But he finally moved his family on to Mamre, which was a terebinth grove near Hebron, Oak Grove. We talked about this a little, I think, before when we first encountered Hebron. But let me just remind you, because the passage specifically calls the place Kiriath Arba, and then in brackets, parentheses, says that is Hebron, that the original name of the site was Kiriath Arba. Kiriath means city or town. Arba means four. Uh, the city of, of the four, or the fourth city, something uh, along that particular line. The origin of the name is, is not specified, so we don't really know, but it could simply be a reference to uh, the coalition of four villages or maybe the merging of four clans to, uh, to produce the one central area. Now, this has happened many times in history. The, the ancient city of Athens was the product of several villages which were in the area which eventually simply merged into the one city of Athens and, and then went on, of course, to be one of the great cities of history. And, and even Rome itself was a, a 
you know, a, a collage of several villages that existed on the various hills around there and finally formed together as a single entity under the domination of the Etruscans. Uh, so, so this concept is not foreign in history and could be what we're talking about here. So the city made up of four villages or four clans or whatever, Kiriath Arba. But we know it uh, as, as Hebron, and that's what it's called today. And uh, the term Mamre could be used more or less synonymously, even though it apparently referred to the, the grove not too far, right on the outskirts somewhere uh, around Hebron, uh, which was a plot of land that uh, Abraham had purchased. Without going back to the passage in Genesis 14, you remember that Mamre was the name of one of the allies of Abraham. And so that name was simply a person's name being attached to the spot. And then the, the name Hebron uh, meant confederation and most likely referred to uh, Abraham's alliance with these uh, other men who were Hittites, apparently, who lived in this particular area. And it was that confederation, of course, that chased down the invading forces from Mesopotamia back in the days of uh, Lot, when Lot was captured and carried off. And so we have the city of four, we have the grove of the man Mamre, we have the, the city called Confederation, and these are all basically synonymous uh, terms. So what Jacob is doing is returning to the homestead, the family homestead, going back to the place where he spent most of his early life you know, back and forth from, from that particular area. Isaac had spent most of his life there at uh, Hebron, or in the area at least, moving around quite often south from there, but focusing probably most of his years there at Hebron. And so Jacob is finally coming home to take over the family homestead. I'm sure Isaac was wondering when it was going to happen, you know, once you get to be 160, you're probably figuring somebody else ought to take over responsibility for running the farm, you know. And even though your son's 100 years old, <laughs> still, he's uh, probably better able to do it than, than you are. And so Jacob finally comes. But, you know, Jacob doesn't come back as the long-lost son who, who returns home like the prodigal with nothing, you know, but a few rags on his back. I mean, this guy comes back with giant herds himself. I mean, he comes a wealthy man. So we got a wealthy man returning to an even wealthier father. And we have no idea what the total numbers are here, but we're talking about large flocks. God had blessed Abraham, and God had blessed Isaac, and their flocks had multiplied. And uh, Jacob was coming with these, these big herds, and, you know, it was like as far as you could look in that direction, as far as you look in that direction were the flocks over the hillsides, you know. Uh, as the two were merged. So I think when Jacob came home, we're not talking about a doubling of his wealth. We're probably talking about a quadrupling of his wealth or some such factor there as he came into his, um, his inheritance. How many people are we talking about? We don't have any real idea. Uh, the only way we have of measuring is to go back, remember, when we talked about Abraham putting together the army by which he ran down the Mesopotamian Confederation, and we're told there they had over 400 men born in his own household who formed this army. 
And I told you back then that, conservatively speaking, that must have yielded at least a population of 2,000 that belonged to Abraham as servants and allies and so forth. And, and so Jacob's moving in now with who knows how many hundreds plus all the people he had brought out of Shechem. We're talking about a, a pretty good size encampment here as he moves to Hebron. And, you know, suddenly the population of the area is, is, is increased rather significantly. It would not surprise me at all if Jacob had under his authority, as he took over from his father, at least 3,000 people that were his responsibility. Does this give us any kind of an idea how wealthy this man was? I think he was far more wealthy than Job, in spite of all that, that Job was described as having. We're told in this passage that Isaac was 180 when he died. We're also told in the passage that both Esau and Jacob took part in the burial. Now Esau lived in Mount Seir, or Edom, uh, from Hebron that was at least 90 miles away, depending on where exactly uh, Mount Seir was located relative to the whole country of, of Edom. Now, looking at the probability that he would have come from Mount Seir to Hebron by camel, it would have taken him two days, probably minimally, to make the journey. Whether he was already there in anticipation of his father's death or came in response to a word that his father had died, I think more the former than the latter, because by the time the message got to him and he came, it, you know, better part of a week could have evaporated and so would have Isaac. So probably what happened was he was told, you know, dad's on his deathbed, you better come. And, and so Esau was there to witness the death of his, of his father. When the father died, the two brothers were brought together and they participated in the burial of their father there in the cave of Machpelah. It doesn't say that here, but we're told in the 49th chapter of Genesis that he was buried in the cave of Machpelah, which was logical. That was the family burial spot. That was where Abraham and Sarah were already buried, and certainly Rebekah. So when it was all over and the father was interred, now what were the brothers going to do? How were they going to deal with what had been left behind? Jacob had, quote, stolen the birthright. Jacob had bought the inheritance. And Esau and Jacob had more or less buried the hatchet, you might say, uh, when they met near Peniel. So the question is, does the hatchet remain buried? What, what is the division of the inheritance here? doesn't say. Does Jacob keep it all? Remember when they first met, Esau said, what means all these animals you're sending my way? I got plenty. I don't need your animals. Does Esau still have that same attitude here? Or does he have this feeling, I was cheat cheated? Well, there's no implication uh, indicating that he felt cheated. I would think, though, that it was probably Jacob's desire to share with his brother. I don't think his fear of Esau was completely gone. Plus, I think Jacob had 
come to the place, what do I need it all for anyway? You know, I've got more than I can handle. You know, I mean, what, what difference does a few thousand sheep or goats mean if you've got a whole countryside full of them? Well, I think he probably, my, my feeling is that he probably tried to give Esau some of the inheritance. But I think on the other side of the coin, that Esau probably rejected it because Esau is a, great ma a, a man of great pride. And he had only accepted the gift from, from Jacob because Jacob appealed to him on the basis of what was proper etiquette in that part of the world at that time. But I think Esau at this point could easily say, I don't want it, I don't need it, I sold it to you, and I stand by what I did, even though in his mind he knew it was a foolish thing to do, certainly later. And so I think that there's, there's no indication here that Esau carried off any of the wealth back to his, his homeland. I, I think it's really important for us here, or at least interesting for us to note that these chapters through here are not in perfect chronological order, which may disturb us because of our Western way of thinking, but didn't disturb the Hebrews at all. To them, chronological order wasn't all that important. There were other things that were more important. But to us, who have been trained in the Greco-Roman way of looking at things, hey, you know, it, this year happens before this year, so we want it written that way so we can keep it up. You, you ever try reading a history book where it kind of jumps all over the place and in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue and the next chapter talks about the Sumerians and the chapter after that talks about the Romans and the one after that talks about Clinton? You know, I mean, <laughs> that's real confusing. Years ago I got an advertisement for a, uh, a Western Civilization textbook that they were going to publish which started at the present work backwards. So you'd read about today, and then you read about yesterday, and then you read about the day before, and you work your way back to the beginning of time. I thought, well, that's rather unique. Uh, they never published it. Uh, I think they probably didn't get too many positive responses on that particular approach uh, to, to doing it, because we think in a certain pattern. It's real hard to reverse it and think differently. But as you look at this uh, here, we discover that uh, Jacob's, uh, Isaac's death is recorded here in chapter 35, verse 29. He breathed his last and, and he died. And yet he's still alive. As we read chapter 37, and as we read part of 38, he's still alive. Now, why is that? Does he come back? No. It's because, of course, those chapters go back and recount things that are, happened before he died. And, and we can determine this by looking at it this way. Jacob was born when his father was 60. He went to Paden Aram when, he was, when Jacob was 70-ish. We know that he spent approximately 20 years in Paden Aram. And he took about 10 years getting back and finally getting to the homestead, maybe a little bit more. So when you add those all up, you come up to the age of 160 for Isaac at the time that Jacob finally returns home, or 162, or you know, somewhere around, around there. So as you look at the 27th verse of this 35th chapter, it says, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre. And then you read the 29th verse. There's about two decades between those two verses. Close to two decades between those two verses. That's why I said when 
Jacob came home anticipating the death of his father. It was going to be a while. His father might have been a little bit infirm and old, but he was around for a while. And the same thing will happen, we'll discover, when we get to the end of the life of Jacob. You know, people all come to have him bless everybody, and, you know, dad's dying, so bless the whole family, and then we find out he lives on for many years after that. You know, it's kind of like you come to bury dad, but dad's not dying yet, you know. Dad's going to fool you all and hang around for a while and look over your shoulder, see what you're doing. Well, hopefully not that. Going back just a minute to, to see how this fits. Remember Laban uh, talked Jacob into staying another half a dozen years to work for pay after he had worked the first 14 years for his two wives. Well, Joseph was born just before that little deal was made. And so Joseph was about six when, when Jacob left Paden Aram. And there was about a 10-year period of time in which he took to get from Paden Aram down to Hebron and finally camped there. So that made Joseph 16, approximately. And what's interesting is we get to chapter 37, we're going to discover, it says, and when Joseph was 17, these events transpired. So Jacob had only been home for a short period of time when chapter 37 begins to come into play. And since Isaac is going to live many years beyond that, Isaac lives through it all. Isaac lives through the tragedy of Joseph being taken away and disappearing out of their lives. And certainly he must have been some kind of a comfort to his father, uh, I mean to his son Jacob. Well, let's uh, turn to the 36th chapter of Genesis. Uh, let me read the first three verses to begin with. Now, these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, and the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, and also Basimeth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth. Last time I looked at the dictionary of names for children for us, I don't remember any of those. Well, most of Ada may have been there, but most of the rest of those names weren't there. People are always looking for an unusual name, you know, so their kid isn't named like everybody else's. Esau, as we well know, was not in the covenant lineage. His genealogy, therefore, is recorded here as a parenthesis. As, as you come to the end of 35 and before you start 37, there's this little parenthesis stuck in here. Edom, the nation which descended from Esau, would, would play a very important role as a principal antagonist to Israel later. And therefore, background information is provided so that Israel would know why God said, for example, when the children of Israel were getting ready to come into the land, leave Edom alone. Edom's your brother. In reading these first three verses, there arises what seems to be a problem. Now, it may not look like a problem until you go back and read some other verses that we've already studied. And these, this problem revolves around Esau's wives. Not that he had three of them. That wasn't particularly unusual. But if, if we were to turn back to the 26th chapter where Esau first marries uh, a couple of what the scripture calls Hittite women, we discovered he was about 40 at that time. 
So Esau married long before Jacob did. And uh, that he was married to two Hittite women by the name of Judith and Basimuth. And then in the 28th chapter, we're told that he married Ishmael's daughter, Mahalath. Now, as you look at that passage we just read, you'll notice there's no Mahalath and there's no Judith. There is a Basimuth, but it isn't the woman the original Basimuth was, or it is, the name isn't anyway applied to the same person. In this passage, we discover his wives are Ada, Aholo-Libbama, and Basimuth. So the question is, well, some, and I, I do not subscribe to this particular position, some say that the copyists just got mixed up and, and they got the names mixed up and they wrote the wrong people in here. I just, I have trouble with that. Um, I, I believe in the concept of God's superintendency over the scripture, even in, the, uh, even in small matters. And so we need to look at this and consider what could be the reason for these differences. Uh, how can we reconcile the two earlier passages with this one? And I feel that there are two ways by which we can do this. Uh, the first is that uh, Judah simply died and it's not recorded that she died and that's nothing to be particularly uh, you know, overwhelmed about. I mean, certainly she was older than Rachel and uh, we know that Rachel has already died. And uh, it was very common in those days for women to die in childbirth. And of course, without medicine as we know it today, all kinds of diseases uh, could take your life. Just, just imagine. I don't know how many of you would not be here today if we didn't have the ability to take care of a simple thing like an appendectomy or an appendix, you know. Get a big pain down here and, and the thing blows up and you die of peritonitis. I mean, this happened ooh, how many millions through history? Uh, we're, today it's no big deal. A lot of us wouldn't be here, including me, uh, if it were you know, 200 years ago or even 100 years ago in the way medicine was. So I think probably Judith died because there's not any way we really can screw her name around or the whole situation to fit into this new passage and that she was later then replaced by Oholibama. Personally, I prefer Judith. <laughs> But what, what, what seems to bring this together in part is also the fact that Judith is, is said to have been a Hittite, whereas Aholibama is, is referred to as a Hivite or a, a Horite. And it's probable that she, he met her after he met, moved to Mount Seir, because as we're going to see as we move further along, she was from Mount Seir. Secondly, I think the other differences can be accounted for not by changes in the women, but by changes in their names. Remember, in those days, names were given because they had a meaning. He didn't just go to a book and go down the list and say, oh, I like this one, and, and attach it to the kid. Now, the kid was given a name because it related to something that was important in the life of the mother or the father or both. It was predictive, it was descriptive, or somehow it was applied to the person because it had meaning. I think that what we're looking at here are possibly Esau's pet names for his wives. When he married Basimuth, which means fragrant, he may have decided that she is the ornament of my life. And so he called her ornament, which is Ada. 
and you know that that she was the sort of the, the girl of his dreams and so he gave her the pet name ornament and so the name Ada stuck and is thus here and then later when he married Mahalath the daughter of Ishmael now her name meant harp he may not have wanted his wife to be called harp you know and it could very well be that she was you know wore some nice perfume a great deal of the time and smelled well so he decided to call her Basimuth, which means fragrant. Well, <laughs> it's possible, isn't it? What I'm saying is, we don't have to take the route that some take, that, you know, the Bible's got all these screwed up passages because somebody mistranslated or, or somebody, you know, goofed up uh, down the line. You don't have to go with the JDPQ or whatever, you know, different... Uh, ideas of the sources for, for the book of Genesis. Personally, I feel to go that route is simply a declaration of, of lack of faith and belief in an almighty God. I mean, if a God can create the universe, he certainly can keep his Bible straight. You know? I don't see any problem there. But some people have all kinds of problems. They have problems with miracles, and so they decide mankind evolved because any other way involves some kind of a miracle, and we don't want any miracles here. So it's kind of interesting. The name Judith meant praised. Aholalibmama meant exalted tent. You might wonder, <laughs> why would you call your wife exalted tent? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's not as, as far out as it might seem. Uh, quite often, some of the ladies who were born to the uh, imperial family in Constantinople in the days of the Byzantine Empire, the ladies often had attached to their name Porphyrogenitus, you know, Sophia Porphyrogenitus. And, and the word Porphyrogenitus meant born in the purple because the royal nursery in uh, Constantinople was all draped in royal purple the color of the family and of royalty. And to be born there meant you were born to the royal family and you were one of the full-blooded royal members and, and therefore you were protected <coughs> by that. And so I, I think in her case, because as we go, uh, look a little bit further along, we're going to discover she was born to one of the chiefs of the Horites who lived in the area before, before Esau took over. And so she was probably born in the chief's tent, the exalted tent, if you will. Or it could have been that that was just Esau's way of referring to her, to her as his chief wife. Oh, exalted tent, you chief wife, you know, whatever. <laughs> Not cheap, chief wife. Well, whatever, whatever are the details here. <laughs> whatever are the details, the basic agreement is here. Esau married two women who were generically Canaanite, using the word Canaanite for the non-Hebrew peoples who lived in the land, whatever was their ethnic group, and one of them was a daughter of Ishmael. Now, I think the passage later supports this concept that that lady, the O lady, was, was later, was later, because as we look at the situation that develops, 
there is there's support in the passage to indicate that she was married much later to Esau than the other ladies uh, were. And so she was a replacement, I believe, for Judith. Well, let's look at verses 4 to 9. And Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basimuth bore Reuel. And Oholibamah bore Jush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters. Notice it says, and daughters, but not a single one is ever mentioned in this, these passages. But he had them, obviously. And all his household and his livestock and his cattle and all his goods, which he acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great for them to live together. And the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These then are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. Now when you read this passage, you have to understand that when Moses wrote this, he was looking at it with the tremendous hindsight, looking back at this period of time which happened so much before. And so he paints a broad picture, not perfectly in chronological order either. And of course it doesn't matter, it doesn't make it wrong. It just, we have to understand that otherwise if we try to go literally word by word down through here, we're going to say, now how is it that Edom was over, I mean Esau was over here living and he goes and meets Jacob at Peniel and then he goes back to his home, but now he's in Canaan and Jacob chased, you know, it just doesn't all fit together unless you look. Moses is writing a summary picture here of, of the scene. Esau married his first two wives, we're told in the scripture, when he was about 40. Um, he was about 120 or so when he helped Jacob bury their father. So he had been married for 80 years from the very beginning to that moment. During that time, his wives had given to him five sons and an undesignated number of daughters. Those sons, in turn, had given to him, two of them had, given to him seven grandsons, and certainly an undesignated number of granddaughters. So as we look through this passage, as you read further down, when if you have the old King James Version, it says, Duke this, Duke that, Duke the somebody else, that we're looking at five sons and 11 grandsons. Two of the sons get out of the picture because they're the fathers or the grandfathers, and then three of the sons are plugged in, so you end up with 14 that are prefixed by the word chief or, or duke in the King James Version. So Esau's family has multiplied. It has grown in wealth. He is a man of great wealth. He needed more space, and therefore he moved. He moved to Mount Seir. He knew that his brother was the inheritor of the covenant. He knew that his brother was the inheritor of the homestead and all of the family wealth. And therefore, he was not going to stay around where he would ultimately clash with Jacob. Now, he didn't clash with Jacob yet before he moved to Mount Seir because Jacob wasn't there. But Jacob was there in the sense that all that Isaac had was Jacob's. And that's probably what is referred to at the end of verse 6 there where it says, and he went to another land away from his brother Jacob. Well, Jacob wasn't actually living there yet when he first moved to Mount Seir. 
because Jacob was still in paid Naram. But he was in the sense that all that his father had was, was his. The great size of their flocks was a primary motivating factor for the move. As we are well aware of, sheep and goats and all these animals eat a lot of grass. And uh, in a land that is partially semi-arid, uh, that grass does not rejuvenate real quickly. And therefore, large amounts of space are needed. And so we simply moved out of the area, and that's what we're told in verse 7. For their property had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of what? Their livestock. And so they moved. He moved. Edom moved. Esau moved. I think there was another little factor there, which it doesn't mention, but certainly to some extent, Esau also felt that he had disappointed his father. After all, he was the one who was supposed to inherit the whole ball of wax. He was the firstborn. And I think there was a little shame there because of his folly in his youth. And so he wanted to get out of the way so that there wasn't this constant rub between his father and himself. And he was going to make it on his own out over there in Edom because he was a self-made man. Well, as we look through the next passage, we won't do, try to do that this morning, but as we go through the remaining part of the chapter, there are certain little in incidents and details in here which are helpful in understanding later incidents in Scripture, and we will focus on those next week. And then we're going to go into the life of Joseph and what happens to Joseph, and we'll be moving in then to the final section of the book of Genesis. We've looked at the patriarch Abraham, the patriarch Isaac, the patriarch Jacob, and now we'll look at the patriarch Joseph, and he, that will take us through the remaining portion of the book of Genesis.